Welcome again to our Good Friday service. The church is alive tonight. I love it. Well, as Pastor Rob mentioned, tonight we are going to remember the cross and why the cross is so important to us. And in a moment, I'm going to come back up and and we're going to respond to the message of the gospel, to the message of the cross by receiving communion. And if you're here tonight and you've never responded to the gospel before, we're going to invite you to follow Jesus for the first time. But before we do, I have a special guest to introduce. He is no stranger to Calvary Vista. Let's hear a round of applause. For Pastor Ben Corson. Wow, what a good Friday. Goodness gracious. COVID isn't stopping the church. Can I get a day bed? Rob, I love you so much. You're sitting right back there. I just admire you and what God is doing through you and what he's doing through your staff, what he's doing through this church. It's remarkable. This is a beacon of hope for Vista and far beyond. Can we give God a big round of applause for how he's moving in Southern California? Amazing. At the turn of the millennium, Newsweek did an article that was a cover story. And guess who this cover story was propagating and promoting? It was a story about Jesus. Newsweek claimed that Jesus is the most prominent figure in Western history. Now, thank you, Newsweek, for proclaiming that, but we already knew that. Even if you're not a Christian, you have to admit that Jesus is the most prominent figure in Western history. What that means is he is in a category unto himself. More songs have been written about Jesus, even though as far as we know, he never wrote a song. More books have been written about Jesus, though as far as we know, he never wrote a book. More paintings have been painted of Jesus, though he never painted as far as we know, than any person in the history of the world. Jesus is in a category unto himself. The Bible says he has the name above all names. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is curious to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amazing stuff. Now, you might be coming to church tonight and you're saying, Ben, I relate in a sense, metaphorically speaking, to the archetypal paradigm and imagery of a cross, of a crucifix. You know, Paul, we're going to read from Philippians. Would you turn with me to Philippians? Was writing to a city that had Latin inscriptions all over it. You can actually see this through archaeology. There were Latin inscriptions everywhere. And on these buildings, we gathered that that was one of their chief languages. And uh, back then, the Latin word for cross was crux. In fact, we get the word crucible or excruciating from the word the cross. And the Latin word for cross was crux. Now, it's actually believed that the word crux was an expletive back then. So if I were to read this verse, when it talks about Jesus dying on a cross, back then in the first century, you would say Jesus dying on a beep. You wouldn't actually say the word cross. Why? Because this was an honor-shame society, and the greatest shame one could experience was being crucified on a cross. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen unless it was high treason, you were not allowed to be crucified. The word crux was an expletive. It was a curse word. And Jesus, high and lifted up, exalted, the name above all names, would empty himself, kenosis in Greek, that's what this poem teaches, and he would become obedient even to the point of dying on a beep, on a cross. 
that lowest shame to demonstrate God's love for us? Let's take a look at what Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says. Speaking of Jesus, this is a poem. Some believe this is part of a hymn that was sung in the early Christian church. And being found, Philippians 2.8, in appearance or fashion as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Everyone's saying obedient to death, even death on a cross. This breaks the poetic meter, even death on a cross. He's emphasizing, he's isolating this idea. He's pointing this out that he didn't just die. He was obedient to die even on a cross. Now, what's interesting is when it says he became obedient to death, this is implying that Jesus, by his own voluntary volition, chose to lay down his life. Don't think the nails held Jesus on the cross. It was his love that held him on the cross. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. He said, I lay it down willingly. He he became obedient. This was a voluntary act of his own volition to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was it like to be crucified? What was it like to carry a cross? Well, a cross, we believe back then, Jesus' cross would have probably weighed about 100 pounds. It was 100 pounds that he would carry up a mountain, carry up a hill after his back was torn apart, scourged with whips. And as he's carrying the cross up the tree, uh, 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 carrying the tree, the cross up the hill, what's interesting is this would weigh about 100 pounds and it was recycled timber. It would have probably had the blood, sweat, man, I feel like this is like an old Western. There's tumbleweeds going by as he's carrying the cross up the hill. But this was recycled timber, and it would have probably had the blood, sweat, and tears of previous victims staining the cross. See, back then, these were prisoners, these were slaves, these weren't even Roman citizens that were crucified. They were the scum of society, they were the dregs of the earth, they were the lowest of the low, they were the marginalized, disenfranchised, outcasts. Why would you make a new cross for them? You might as well just recycle crosses. So you've got to picture Jesus carrying a recycled cross, perhaps with the blood, sweat, and tears of previous victims on it. You say, okay, as Jesus is crucified, he's hanging on a cross, why does this matter? Perhaps you're coming to church tonight and you're like, I've grown up in church and I still don't really understand why the cross matters. Maybe you've never been to church and you're wondering, why does the cross matter? What's interesting is, last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday. During Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry is an event that is actually recorded in all four Gospels. But did you know that Jesus rode on a donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9? And what's interesting is, did you know on every donkey, its back has the symbol of a cross? Isn't that wild? On, On a donkey, its back has the symbol of a cross. So Jesus, even on Palm Sunday, riding in on a donkey is, this is a paradigm for his crucifixion on the cross. Now, The cross affects us, I want to point out how it affects us in seven different ways. Eleven times in the book of Philippians, in 104 verses, Paul will talk about the mind or mindset. And 16 to 19 times, roughly, circa 16 to 19 times, he will use the noun joy or its cognate verb rejoice. Philippians, this book that we're reading, this hymn that we're studying, this is actually a book about joy and changing your mindset. Though it's only 104 verses, you can actually read the entire book of Philippians in 15 minutes or less. So you can either change your car insurance with Geico or you can change your joy in 15 minutes or less. 
But this is a book about joy. This is a book about changing your mindset. This is a mindset reset. And what I want to point out through this death on the cross, Philippians 2.8, is that Colossians 1 actually teaches that through the blood, we have redemption. Let me say that again. Colossians 1 teaches that through the blood, we have redemption. How so? Well, I want to point out at least seven, though it's not limited to this, seven different ways we find redemption through the cross. Why seven? Because how many places did Jesus bleed from? Seven. He bled from seven places. He bled from the head. Not wearing a crown of jewels, but as the king of the Jews, he wore a crown of thorns. This king didn't have a signet ring on his fingers, but rather he had nails in his hands. The second, the third place he bled from, the nails in his hands. He didn't have servants kissing his feet, but rather he washed the feet of his disciples. And then he bled from the feet as the nail pierced both feet. That's the fourth and fifth place he bled. But not only that, he didn't have his loyal subjects getting his back. They all fled from him pretty much. And instead his back was scourged. He bled from the back. That's six. And the seventh place he bled was from his side. Rather than having princes to his right and his left on thrones, he had thieves to his right and his left on the cross. That's the story of Jesus. But I want to point out how figuratively from these seven places, we can find a holistic integrated redemption in a sevenfold variegated manner in our spiritual lives today. So number one, I want to point out how Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross, in that he bled from the head. Isn't it interesting how this passage, talking about Jesus being obedient to death on a cross, this is a book about joy, and it's a book about the mind. The blood gives us redemption in our minds, just as Jesus bled from the head. How many of you need to get out of your head? How many of you have problems overthinking? How many of you have problems catastrophizing? How many of you have problems with anxiety, depression, Worry, OCD, ADD, ADHD, SAD, for all I know, ODD. Like, I don't know. I don't know. What do you, what's the, what's your problem in your head? You know what the Bible doesn't say? That you've been given power, love, and a sick mind. It says you've been given power, love, and a sound mind. Listen, I've been diagnosed with OCD. I've been diagnosed with uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't even know what that was. I know what it's like to have mental illness And if God healed me, he can heal anybody. But I want to teach, this is why I'm so passionate about mental health. Jesus bled from the head. Why? Because he shows us that we can have redemption in our heads. How so? Well, I love studying neuroscience. You know, a lot of people think when you're going through anxiety and depression and worry, is it a spiritual battle or is it a neurobiological battle? And the answer is yes. You do realize Christians invented science, right? It drives me crazy when people are like, is it science or the Bible? Science tells us how, the Bible tells us why. People are like, do you have to choose between God or science? That's like saying, do you have to choose between God and the Bible? They're not antithetical. They go together. Like a day off in a hammock, like chips and salsa. They go together. Do you understand? William of Ockham and Roger Bacon invented the scientific method 750 years ago when they were Franciscan monks and friars respectively. In other words, Christians invented science 750 years ago. 
So let me just remind you that even neurobiologically, there's actually a thing called neurotheology. We can see through MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging and CAT scans, what's happening in people's brains based on what they pray, how they think about God, their theology and their way of meditating. So let me explain what I mean. Neurobiologically, you have this thing in your head called a pons. Your pons is what controls your expression. You know, it's really funny. When you preach, you realize that people don't know that the preacher can see the people watching. So I think a lot of people go to church today and they're so used to going to movie theaters that they kind of like zombie out and they think, oh, the preacher can't see me. No, he absolutely can. So smile and nod, people. Smile and nod. Your puns is actually responsible for your expression. That's the part of your brain, roughly, and I'm using kind of grossly simple terms to make it accessible, but it roughly controls your expression. You know what the Bible says? That God's count, it says, may the light of God's countenance guide your way. It calls it, it literally means his smile. May God smile upon you. May his countenance shine upon you. God smiles at you. So too, because we have redemption through the blood, we can smile. It's not just a smile faking it deep in our ponds. We can actually control our expression. You know what David said? You are the lifter of my head. When Absalom stole the throne from him, he said, God, you're the lifter of my head. That was a metaphor figuratively for, you're going to give me back the throne in Jerusalem. You're going to restore my palace back to me. So too, we can, through the redemption of the love of God, as manifested through the blood of Jesus, smile. You say, why should I smile? You know what my uh, mom used to do? She used to make these bumper stickers that said, smile, Jesus loves you. That's good enough reason. Can I get an amen? I'm loved. You are loved. So it gives us the ability to smile with our pawns. It actually redeems the part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. You say, what is the orbitofrontal cortex? Did you know that's the part of your brain in the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, part of it, that actually weighs the consequences of potential actions so that you're going to determine whether to do a certain action or make a certain choice or not? Did you know, parents, you are going to love this. And teenagers don't use this as an excuse. But in teenage brains... Did you know teenage brains, their orbitofrontal cortex is actually underdeveloped? So sometimes you say like, why do teenagers make such bad decisions? Like, does my teenage kid not even think about the repercussions of his actions? That's exactly right. (laughs) The part of his brain that actually thinks about the consequences of actions is underdeveloped when he's a teenager. So take heart. If you raise up a child in the way that he should go, Proverbs says, in the end, he will not depart. It never says as a teenager, they won't make stupid decisions. So be encouraged. But we have redemption in our orbital frontal cortex. God can, if you're a teenager, give you wisdom beyond your years. If Josiah could become king at eight years old and Jesus at 12 years old could debate with scribes and scholars and Paul told Timothy, do not despise your youth. Then even at a young age, for those of you kids here, you can have wisdom beyond your age accounts for because of the blood of the redemption of the love of God because he bled from the head. Not only that, You have another part in your brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is the center for fear. Fear. You know what the Bible says? Perfect love casts out fear. God is love. There is no fear in love. So God is love. That's the starting point. God is love. That's the ending point. Everything in between is just an adventure. Everyone say, God is love. love. Knowing that God is love casts out your fear. Did you know that? Brain scans show that if you pray to a tribalistic deity who you think is out to smite you with vengeance, you're going to have high activity in your amygdala and you're always going to be scared. 
Have you ever noticed that people who believe in a grumpy God tend to spread fear messages to other people? Because they're activating amygdalas. When you know the love of God, not only the love of God, but that God is love, your amygdala loses its power, blood flow and activity, and you're not as scared. In fact, when the Bible says this is sick, perfect love casts out fear, that word fear in Greek, does anybody know what it is? It's phobos, from which we get our word phobia. I have claustrophobia. I'm afraid of Santa Claus. I mean, tight spaces. I have arachnophobia. I'm afraid of insects. I have agoraphobia. I have socialphobia. I, I make up a new one, zoophobia. You're just afraid of everything in life. You know what God's love does? It casts out our fear. Meditate on the love of God. There's redemption for your head. He bled from the head. The amygdala loses its power. Two more things in your head that I want to point out. There's something called the hippocampus. It's the Greek word for seahorse. Because in your brain, your hippocampus looks like a seahorse. Now, your hippocampus is responsible for your memories. If it gets damaged, you'll have amnesia. Now, your hippocampus is responsible for remembering. Just before Jesus went to the cross, just before he was obedient even to the death of the cross, what did he say to his disciples? Take, eat, this is my body. Do this, as Tyler's going to lead us in in a moment, do this in remembrance of me. Right now, the body of Christ globally is divided because of politics. What do you do when the body is dismembered? You remember. What do you do when the body's dismembered? You remember. What do you remember? He said, take, eat, this is my body. Drink, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It's his love that brings us together. And then finally, brain scans show that if you meditate on a loving God, you'll actually develop more activity and signals in your anterior cingulate cortex in your head, which is the most cuddly part of your brain, which is responsible for feeling safe. Do you want to feel safe? Why are 50% of people sevens or sixes on the Enneagram? They want security. They want, people want security. They want to feel safe. How can you feel safe? Like the universe isn't inimical, antithetical, or hostile toward your very existence. You have to meditate on the love of God. So use your hippocampus to remember what Jesus did, which is why we're here tonight. And use your anterior cingulate cortex to feel safe in the presence of God. And brain scans show you can do this when you pray to a loving God. So we can have a mindset reset. As Paul said, we can be renewed in Ephesians in the attitudes of our minds. The Bible says we can have a new mind. Jeremiah said he puts his laws inside our minds. The Bible says we can meditate on what's true and lovely. We need redemption for our head. That's the first place he bled. The second and third place he bled was from his hands. The nails in his hands. The nails in his hands. I want to speak from my heart on this one. That was heady. Let's go to the heart. Have you ever wondered... Why no one seemed to recognize Jesus after he died and rose again in the story? Why, why didn't people recognize him? Remember what he said to Thomas, touch my wounds? He said, touch my wounds. Thomas said, if I could just touch the holes in his hands, right? I'd believe. But why is it that in the story of Jesus, when he rises, like, why don't people recognize him? Is he wearing like that detective mustache disguise with the with the glasses? Was his COVID mask just a little too big? 
Was his Sherlock Holmes hat just pulled over his brow a little too low? Why didn't they recognize him? Let me share with you three stories. Here Jesus is in a garden, the last Adam. That's what the Bible calls him. A throwback to the first Adam. He's making all things new. And Mary, one of his best friends, sees him in a garden and doesn't recognize him. In fact, she thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't even recognize him. She's standing next to him in a garden and she doesn't recognize him. Why? Why when Jesus is ichthyologically about 75, 100 feet or yards away from his disciples, that's where they would fish, after he rises again in the story, he says, children, have you any meat? Have you caught any fish? They say, no, we haven't caught anything. And they didn't recognize him. How do you not recognize Jesus from like 75, 100 feet or yards away? How do you not recognize him when you're that close? You've been with him for three and a half years of his public earthly ministry. Here's, here's my favorite one. Third story. Here's Jesus walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's giving them a Bible study from Genesis to Malachi. Teaching how all of these things testify of him. And they still didn't recognize him. Until he broke bread in their midst. Mary didn't recognize him until he said her name. The disciples didn't recognize him until he made them catch 153 fish miraculously. They didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus until he broke bread. Why didn't they recognize him? Could it be? Because Jesus was so scarred from his crucifixion. That when he rose, in this narrative, the disciples couldn't recognize him because the Bible says he was marred beyond recognition. Something happened to Jesus on the cross that marred him and brutalized him, disfigured him so extensively that he was marred more than any other man beyond recognition, the Bible says. So he rises from the dead. In this story, he he says to Thomas, touch my wounds. Why do we think there's just wounds in two hands? The Bible says that he bled from seven places. His whole body was torn apart. But he brought his scars into his glorified body. He brought his scars into his resurrection narrative arc. You say, Ben, what's your point? When Jesus bled from the hands, he had scars in his hands. Can I remind you? that the scars were part of his glorified body so they couldn't even recognize him. And the Bible says, if we share in his suffering, we will also partake in his glory. What does that mean? The scars that you've endured in life, the situations that were too hot to handle, the, the dramas and traumas, the crosses and losses that you've taken into your hands that have left you scarred, guess what? You're bringing those scars with you into the afterlife, only they're going to be redeemed and they're actually going to be your badges of honor. Your scars become your stars. Your wounds become your wisdom. And people are going to have a hard time recognizing you because your scars show so much glory. They're like, who are you? Come on, somebody. This is big. So everything you go through All the scars you endure now, that's part of your resurrection narrative arc. Pain forges your spirit into steel and tempers your soul into iron. So you are forged by adversity to grow into the likeness of God, the very image of the divine. The Bible says the full stature of Christ, he redeems your scars because he bled from the hands. What about the back? Jesus bled from the back. That's the fourth place, the back. 
Can I remind you that God has got your back? Have people betrayed you? Anybody who's on the Jesus path will suffer a major betrayal. Every Jesus has a Judas. Can I say that again? Anybody who's on the Jesus path will suffer a major betrayal in their life. Every Jesus has a Judas. Say, does anyone have my back? Jesus bled from the back. He's saying, I'm your rear guard. That's what God says in the Old Testament. I've got your back. C.H. Spurgeon called him the hound of heaven. He's chasing you down. He's chasing you down. The Bible uses the word predestination six times in the New Testament, always in positive context, two times of events, four times of people. He is chasing you down. He has destined you for glory. He's got your back because Jesus bled from the back. He shows the Father who's got your back. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fifthly and sixthly, Jesus bled from the feet. Oh, this is one of my favorite one, the feet. He bled from the feet. Right before Jesus was crucified, the Bible says in John 13 that he took up a girdle and started washing the feet of his disciples. That's what he did. Now, back then, if you were a girdle, that was a sign that you were a slave or a servant. In fact, if you wash somebody's feet in wealthy households, that was the job of a slave girl. So Jesus was acting like the slave girl to his disciples, including Judas, which is mind-blowing, starts washing their feet with a girdle. Because back then, a girdle was a uniform that manifested the reality that you were a slave. Just like today, if somebody has a police officer uniform, you say, oh, that's a cop. If somebody has a Lakers jersey, you say, oh, that's a basketball player. If somebody has an apron, you say, that's a chef. Back then, if somebody had a girdle, you say, oh, that's a slave. What does the Bible say? That Jesus, in this passage, actually tells us he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people say, yeah, Jesus was a servant in his first coming, but like in Revelation, he's on a white horse. He's like totally different. Actually, have you read Revelation 1? John the apostle sees the glorified Jesus in his resurrected reality as wearing Revelation 1 says he's wearing a girdle, which was slave's attire, but this girdle is made of gold. It's like a girdle 2.0. It's like a girdle update. Like, you know when you trade in your iPhone 11, you get an iPhone 12 Pro? That's what happened. It's like a girdle, yeah, but it's a girdle of gold. So a girdle is slave's attire. A gold is king's medal. Gold is king's medal. What's that saying? He's a servant king. That's the best kind of leader of all. So a lot of people say, how can I serve God? That's a great question. But you know what's a better question? The Lord says, how can I serve you? Say, oh no, he can't serve me. That's what Peter said. Don't wash my feet, Lord. He said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Why? Because that's the very nature of who he is. He's a servant. He's a servant king. There's gold in the girdle, my friends. And he's a servant king. He washes our feet. He bled from the feet to prove it to you. Lastly, number seven. This is the best of all. He bled from the side. He bled from the side. When he bled from the side, blood and water poured out. As you know, when a woman's giving birth, her water breaks. Blood and water flows to give birth. Jesus, from his side, was giving birth to something miraculous. Because the Bible says he's the last Adam. And as you know, the first Adam, how did God make his bride? By taking a rib out of his side. Something beautifully new was born 
the bride of Christ from the blood and water came out of his side. The last Adam redeemed his bride. The Bible says, while we were yet enemies and sinners, God demonstrated his love in that he died for us. What that means is you, the church, the bride of Christ birthed from his side, were loved by Jesus, not when you were at your best, but God loved you when you were at your worst. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus didn't die for you when you had like the flowing locks, the ice around your neck, the strapless red dress, red carpet ready, high heels, the blush perfectly applied, the mascara around your eyes. By the way, why can't women put on mascara with their, uh, eye, with their mouth closed? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't understand. You didn't think you'd hear that at Good Friday service, did you? It wasn't when we were red carpet ready that he died for us. No. When did Jesus die for us? When we, the bride of Christ, were yet sinners and his enemies. In other words, we were at our worst, worst behavior. Picture this. He died for us when we had curlers in our hair. We had like that Dead Sea beauty mud all over our face. Like a cucumber popping out of our eye socket. We have like a Skippy's peanut butter jar under our arm. We have ho-hos in one hand. Kit Kats in another hand. Chocolate all over our face. The pink fuzzy bathrobe on our body. Bunny slippers on our feet. Keeping up with the Kardashians is playing on the background all day. It's an all-day marathon on E. We hear the doorbell ring and it's Jesus carrying a cross saying, I love you to death. I say, who, me? Are you sure? Sorry, I got to turn down keeping up with the Kardashians. Are you talking to me? You, I think you're to die for. That's what he says to the bride. Not when we were at our best, when we were at our worst. That's when the bride came from the last Adam's side. Come on, man. He loves you. He loves you. Then this verse, this passage, as I close, goes on to say, he has the name above all names. He has the exalted name that is above all. And come back Sunday because Pastor Rob is going to teach you that the story ain't over. That the message of the universe is there is an empty tomb. And our Lord is somebody who redeems every part of us. He redeems our mindset. He redeems our scars. He redeems us when he serves us and washes our feet. He redeems us when we're at our worst. The bride of Christ is birthed from his side. He redeems us when others betray us. He's got our backs. Our Lord redeems every part of us. He speaks life into dead things. He speaks hope into weary souls. He loves us when we're at our worst. He says, weep not. He causes the blind to see, the deaf to speak, to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to leap. He turns the tomb into a womb, the casket into a cradle, the burial place into the birthplace. He beats death with a stick. He takes the cross and he beats death with a stick. He loves you to death. He proved it on the cross. That's what God looks like. So we can have a smile from our pawns. We can have a new redemption in our orbital frontal cortex makes different decisions. 
decisions. We can remember Jesus with our hippocampus and have good memories. We can start to think differently. Our amygdala loses its power. Suddenly, our anterior cingulate cortex is lit up and we feel fuzzy inside. Suddenly, we know that our scars are part of our resurrection narrative arc. Suddenly, when we're not on our best behavior, we, we know that we're the bride of Christ and we are so deeply loved. And we say, Lord, how can I serve you? He says, how can I wash your feet? I bled from the feet. And when others betray us, he's got our backs. This is why the cross gives us redemption. This is why the cross gives us hope because it shows us a God who loves us, who forgives us, who cares about us and has the best in store for us as we walk with, talk to, follow after, lean into and depend upon the God of hope as manifested through Jesus. In his name we pray. Lord, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for this good Friday. Thank you for this sevenfold redemption. Thank you that you redeem our souls. You redeem our bodies. You redeem our stories. You redeem our memories. You redeem every part of us. Thank you that we have hope in you. And God, without you, there is no hope. There is no life. But with you, there is forgiveness. There is peace. There is joy. There's a brand new mindset reset. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.